Hello and welcome. Uh, uh, I'm here to, as Kat said, to share a little bit about the culture and history of the San Luis Valley uh, through the stories of the strange and unusual. Um, please save your questions to the end. Um, go ahead and uh, give me the next slide. So uh, I am Jason Cordova. I am a Chicano Genizaro uh, with roots here in the San Luis Valley uh, on the land of my ancestors. Many of my grandparents and great-grandparents were born and buried here in the villages of San Acacio, Los Sauces, and um, Capulín. Uh, I'm also the president and co-founder of the Crypto Science Society, an alliance of scholars and researchers dedicated to the study of the strange and unusual. Uh, we were founded in 2007 as a student group at the Metropolitan State University of Denver. So we're celebrating our quinceanera, 15 years of uh, paranormal investigating. So to give you a little bit of an idea of where you are, this place in the, in the universe, this mystic valley, some call it the mysterious valley. Uh, it is a arrowhead-shaped valley spanning southern Colorado down into northern New Mexico. It is one of the largest high desert valleys in the world. Uh, its uh, highest altitude is 8,100 feet. Uh, average elevation, 7,600 feet. Give you a little bit of perspective, Aspen Airport base elevation is 7,500 feet. So we're way up there. Uh, it's roughly 65 miles wide, 125 miles long, covers a span of over 8,000 miles. To give that some perspective, the country of Israel is just a little bit bigger with 8,017 square miles. Slovenia is a little bit smaller. And uh, I believe the state of Delaware is uh, comparable in size. So the country's states can fit into this huge, huge valley. Um, it's known, it's a, the valley is renowned as a hotspot. Uh, everything from UFOs, cattle mutilations, Bigfoot, phantoms, the valley is a, a prime proving ground for the paranormal. So as Kat mentioned, it's very important to understand the cultural context of the people that you're uh, working with and encountering. There's a very long history and uh, traditional uh, framework to draw from. Archaeological evidence uh, shows that humans have occupied this area for 10 to 15,000 years at least. Um, the Ute, uh, one of the most notable indigenous groups, that uh, this land is their traditional homeland. Uh, was recognized as a distinct individual group for at least a thousand years. Um, the Apache, Navajo, Comanche people also a few, uh, a little, came, came a little bit later, uh, but also call this place home. And uh, as you can see uh, pictured here on the, your left, my right, uh, is uh, Rosebud Quintana. She is a Ute and Diné uh, woman who uh, says, in school, the chapters on Native American histories are mostly lies or just about the wars. It's only one perspective. But when you're at home, you have your parents and your grandparents who tell you the stories that were passed down. 
Then you have the whole picture and can choose your side. The photo is by a woman named Makita Wilbur, also an indigenous woman who uh, is a photographer and launched a project called the uh, 562 Project intended to depict indigenous people in a contemporary, lively way, not kind of getting away from the the Russell Curtis kind of uh, stoic, lost-in-time kind of idea of who Native people are. The point is that these are two very uh, good examples of recognizing uh, indigenous perspective from them, right, from, from the people who, who live it and, and are that, not from the outsider perspective. So it's very important to keep that in mind. Also, from that perspective, it's important to understand how uh, many Native people regard things that we refer to as the paranormal or the supernatural. Uh, there is no distinction between normal and paranormal. It is simply a recognition of natural forces with a healthy respect where appropriate. Um, we also have uh, the Spanish influence. The Spaniards arrived in New Mexico in 1598, brought with them 16th century Spanish language, uh, also referred to as Castilian, which is uh, uh, spoken, actually still spoken, the same way it was then by many of the communities here in the valley. Uh, a good example, um, you know, Mexicans use the word mijo or mija to refer to a child. Many folks in my family use hito or hita, uh, slight variations, kind of dialectic, but there's, there's some distinct differences. Um, they also brought with them Catholicism, a worldview including demons, angels, saints, brujeria, uh, curses, malojo, or the evil eye, uh, and is very, all very real aspects of everyday life. Um, also, all were considered subjects of the king of Spain, whether you regardless of your uh, ethnicity, uh, as part of the Spanish kingdom, everybody's, everybody's a Spaniard, considered to be a Spaniard. So there's no reservation system uh, like the U.S. had and has. Um, the uh, Mexican Revolution in 1821 gave Mexico independence from Spain, although the communities living up in northern New Mexico were so isolated that uh, were not, they were not really affected significantly by any major cultural changes that occurred then. Um, and as an example, my great times three grandmother, Ascension de Garcia, on the, on the left uh, there, is uh, uh, she was born a Mexican, lived a... Spaniard, died an American, and never left her home here in the valley. Uh, so as we say, the, we never crossed the border, the borders crossed us. Uh, also, and then the American influence, of course. In 18, uh, 1849, uh, the, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo ended the Mexican-American War, ceding territories of New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, Nevada, California, pretty much all the southwestern United States was Mexico, now United States. Um, everybody with Spanish names were assumed to be Mexicans and allowed to become Americans under territorial law, kind of similar to how Puerto Rico is regarded. And it was uh, New Mexico was a territorial 
territory, uh, U.S. territory up until about the mid uh, mid 19th century, actually. Uh, uh, and anyone who was identified as Native or Indian was sent to the reservations. Um, Americans, of course, brought with them the English language. My grandparents and great-grandparents were fluent in both English and Spanish. Uh, my grandparents, depicted here in the center, that's Rudolfo Cordova, and my grandma, uh, uh, Francis Valdez, uh, Francis Senna Cordova. Now, uh, they... Uh, Strived to be more American, assimilate, uh, declined to teach my dad and his siblings Spanish. Kind of joke, they only spoke Spanish when they didn't want them to know what they were talking about, but they absorbed it anyway. Uh, but little things like that. Um, also, American culture brought with it this separation of church and state, separation of the normal and paranormal. Also, different kinds of ideas of land use and resource kind of things. But the most relevant thing here is this kind of um, cultural distinction between real and more etheric kinds of concepts. So uh, creating a little bit of internal conflict uh, among the community, uh, unfortunately. Now... Uh, to get a little bit more deep into the Native American viewpoint and some specific uh, stories and traditions about um, these more esoteric sorts of things that, that we're talking about is um, right here. The most notable uh, indigenous group is the Ute people. Um, they consider themselves right where the creator put them. They've always been here. This is where uh, they originated. Now, uh, they're one of the few indigenous groups that does not have a migration story. Uh, on the other hand, though, the Pueblo people, the modern Pueblo, who now live in uh, along the river, Rio Grande in northern New Mexico, so my Tewa ancestors, came from the villages of Santa Clara and Paraqui Pueblos, uh, and they identify the sand dunes as the place of origin. This is the point uh, where they came into this world and then migrated on to Mesa Verde and then down into Mexico where they are now. Um, and also the Diné, or Navajo people, as most folks recognize them, uh, they're, with their seal depicted in the center, identify four sacred peaks as the boundaries of their Deneta, or the uh, Navajo country. Uh, if you can see, uh, the four sacred peaks are identified on that uh, little seal there um, in the different colors. The blue one on the east side would be Mount Blanca, uh, which can be seen just outside to the north uh, kind of northeast of where we are here. Um, and so they, they recognize this valley as uh, part of their sacred homeland. Um, also, I mentioned before, the Apache uh, and Comanche people have uh, similar stories and uh, recognize this as uh, traditional lands. Next slide, please. All right. Now, I'm sure most of you might recognize this uh, photo in 
Again, forgive me, it would be, it's on the right, right? So my left, your right. That is a Sa'akwachi track in Ute language. It's Sa'akwachi. Most would be familiar with the name Sasquatch, right? It's a, uh, a similar language group, the relatives Shoshone folks that go up into the uh, Pacific Northwest have connections and relatives to the Ute people here. The Ute name for them is Sa'akwachi. Uh, and this is, uh, this is, this photo is here to help uh, talk about a story that was recently related to me by a Ute elder who reported a, a Bigfoot alert. Uh, he called the uh, an encounter, at, he called the tribal police about uh, an encounter at his home down on the southern Ute reservation where uh, it was a very distinct foul smell. He uh, heard and saw this, this creature coming around his home. Tribal police recognized it. Uh, they noted that there were similar reports from the Apache reservation near Dulce, uh, which is just about the same distance away from there as we are from from there as well. Um, and what this story does is recognize that, one, tribal police are taking this seriously, right? This is an official organization through the, the tribal government that is recognizing this as a real thing to take seriously, kind of a, just be aware of it, not necessarily be scared, because they also regard these creatures as a protector, a creature to be respected and whatnot. Um, they're also very familiar with the smell. Each one of these people uh, had had encounters, recognized the smell, and it's uh, kind of a distinct thing, which is consistent with uh, Bigfoot encounters uh, throughout the world. Um, on the other side of that, however, uh, is the skinwalker. Uh, we have uh, right here on the right is a picture uh, derived from a movie poster for a recent film called Hunt for the Skinwalker. Uh, it takes its name from this creature. Um, the, there's a lot of kind of pop culture, uh, strange, strange depictions of the skinwalker, not necessarily based in the traditional folklore of what a skinwalker is. Um, but the way that a skinwalker is known to the, the folks that have taught me is that a skinwalker is a dark sorcerer, someone who has uh, was once human but has become something different due to their obsession with power. Um, they literally wear the skin of another creature with which they use to transform and to shapeshift. Uh, and that's where they get their name of Skinwalker. Um, they're freaky. They're creepy. Um, their powers can kill and control another, another sentient being. And most people who know what they are are very hesitant to talk about them. And um, really, the idea is you don't want to necessarily wake something up that you don't want to invite into your life. So it's important to be very careful uh, about talking about them. And on that note, <laughs> moving on to the Hispano Nuevo Mexico, uh, the Hispanic influence of northern New Mexico. 
You'll notice I talk a lot about New Mexico because culturally, essentially, the southern part of Colorado was uh, New Mexico essentially for a lot longer than it has ever been Colorado. Um, and the entrance of Spaniards into the valley started around 1664. There were some expeditions in 1706. And most of these were less about settlement, but more they were looking for mineral uh, mineral deposits, looking, looking for gold. Uh, they were um, uh, interested in all of the wealth that they could possibly acquire. And uh, this was the northern, pretty much the northern boundaries of Spain uh, at the time. Um, it is said that there is a very lucrative mine that the Spanish had discovered somewhere lost in the Sangre de Cristo mountain range. Um, it is also said to be haunted by the spirits of the conquistadors who stayed behind to guard it. Legend has it that they were uh, led to this mine by some of their Pueblo native contacts, probably slaves, who were aware of it because of their own trade and um, material export uh, sorts of things. Um, while they were there, they came under attack by, uh, by the Utes and were were chased off. Some of them stayed behind to guard it and lost their lives. Others tried to escape, and one friar is said to have managed to escape onto a boat uh, in the San Luis Lake, and as he was riddled with arrows and looking up to the sky, he gasped and exclaimed, El sangre de Cristo, the blood of Christ, as he saw the mountains bathed in this red light from the setting sun, and he uh, passed away, bringing the secrets of the mine uh, and its location with him to the other side. Other spookiness from Spain and the influence is La Llorona, the weeping woman, said to be the spirit of a woman who haunts rivers and roads. She's wailing, crying for her lost children. She's also said to have drowned her children, and she will take yours if you're not careful. She's, stories of La Llorona are wielded kind of like a boogeyman type of figure by parents trying to scare kids away from legitimately dangerous places like rivers, roads, train tracks, places they probably really shouldn't be anyway. But there is some, um, there's, there's more to it. Uh, it seems that every uh, Chicano or Hispano uh, person tends to have at least one either first-hand, at least second-hand story of someone who has actually seen or heard La Llorona. Uh, one in particular story uh, comes from a teacher in Antonito who said she was uh, setting up to have some of her students practice for a Christmas play. Uh, at least the Christmas play is a very um, key part of the tr Christmas tradition for the communities there in the villages. And um, the students were late. Um, she was getting all, uh, she was getting a little bit nervous, and finally they arrived. 
and were very upset because they had they said that they had seen a white woman floating at them across the railroad tracks as they as they were coming to the school. Uh, they were too upset. They were too excited to really do anything productive. So she shut things down, walked them home, and then went home herself. And although she was skeptical, she remained respectful. Um, later that night, she, as she was lying in her bed, her door opened, and she saw the apparition of this white woman, of this woman in white, come to her bed, pull the sheets off of the bed, and then leave out the door she came in. Thinking it was just a dream, she went back to sleep, and the next morning she found the sheets exactly on the floor where they had been left, and the door open uh, as it was uh, the night before. So, who is La Llorona? There are many possible explanations for some kind of a, a historical precedent on where she came from, where the story arose. Um, one of them, the most prominent one, is that of a uh, mestiza woman. So this is a, a mixed uh, blood person who, uh, Spanish and indigenous heritage, who is named Maria, who fell in love with a traveling Spanish nobleman. And they had two children together, and were all happy until the Spaniard uh, found a proper Spanish noble woman to marry. Uh, to, uh, and in, in, in anger, in jealousy, Maria took her children to the river and drowned them. When she realized what she had done, she was overwhelmed with grief and drowned herself. And in order to uh, as punishment for her crimes, she was doomed to wander the world in search of children's souls, essentially. Another story that may be founded in a bit more historical context is that of uh, Malenali and Hernan Cortes. So the conquistador who uh, conquered the Aztec Empire with the help of a slave, an indigenous slave woman uh, who's Nahuatl name was Malinali. Uh, most Mexicans today refer to her as La Malinche, which means the bad one. So she's pretty much blamed for, uh, in a lot of ways, blamed for the conquest because she was instrumental in uh, helping Cortes translate in order to create alliances with uh, some of the indigenous communities who uh, weren't all too happy with the Aztecs, and so therefore... Uh, that led to the conquest. Um, she also uh, bore Cortez at least one child, and according to some legends, um, the story bears some similarities to the more fa fanciful fairy tale version with uh, Maria and her nobleman. Cortez, being a conquistador, was a noble, and Malinali, uh, a, a, an indigenous woman too. Um, although there's not as much historical precedent to uh, show that she she killed her children or herself for that matter, um, that's that's a bit of a divergent there. But the idea, the point there is that she, in a way, is the original mestiza. She is the mother of the mestiza race and the 
the uh, contemporary Mexican people. And uh, for that matter, La Llorona does represent a bit of a uh, collective mother aspect to, to the, the communities that she haunts. Still one more point of origin may be that of Siwakoat, the Aztec mother goddess, who's depicted here in a clay figure on, the, on your left. Uh, it was said that during the conquest, according to some of the uh, codices, that uh, the goddess Siwakoat appeared in the streets of Tenochtitlan as the uh, conquistadors were coming, and she was weeping and crying, my children, my children, what will become of my children? And it is said that because of that, it's a manifestation of her as uh, recognizing the descendants, all of the descendants of the people who were about to be conquered. Uh, she was weeping for them, and uh, that became uh, what we know today as La Llorona. So, uh, regardless of the literal uh, who who she may have been or who she is, she's there, and uh, she's something definitely something to be respected. Okay, fireballs. <laughs> uh, another unique. Um, phenomenon that happens uh, from uh, from the Spanish uh, coming from Spanish stories is that of fireballs dancing around various places around the valley. The earliest uh, known documented case of which was uh, given by Juan Batista de Anza, who was one of the first governors or one of the early governors of New Mexico, who in 1777, while he was chasing after the uh, feared Comanche chief Cuerno Verde uh, into the San Luis Valley, uh, saw a series of fireballs dancing around the Mount Blanca and the sand dunes and uh, documented them in the Spanish Chronicles, which uh, can be found in the Denver Public Library. As a matter of the original manuscripts. It's pretty awesome. Um, they were also accompanied by some strange sounds, a kind of a whirring sound, uh, which is kind of interesting, too. Um, more strangeness uh, seems to focus around the sand dunes and the Blanca Mastiff than, than almost any other part of the valley. It's a very... Um, distinctly unique kind of hotspot, I suppose. Yeah. Also, phantom horses. The Spaniards described seeing horses, giant horses with webbed feet going into and coming out of the sand dunes. Um, some say that they saw footprints, these webbed footprints going into and out of the sand dunes. Um, I don't know of any particular uh, modern stories or contemporary stories of folks who have have witnessed them, but these are more of the older, older documented uh, kinds of things. Next slide, please. Um, the legend of the miracle of San Acasio. Uh, my grandpa Rudy was born in San Acasio. My great grandpa Alex is buried on the hill above the old church. 
This church is the oldest continuously used non-Native American religious space in the state of Colorado. Some would even argue it's the oldest non-Indigenous structure still standing in the state of Colorado. Uh, regardless, it's a really neat old church. Um, the uh, early settlements into this region were happening around 1830, 1840s. Um, the, the Utes were doing a very good job of uh, discouraging settlement for the past few hundred years. And the Mexican land grants were trying to push people to settle here to uh, discourage the Anglo-Americans, the pesky Anglo-Americans from sneaking across the border. Um, a lot of good it did. Uh, but nevertheless, a local tradition holds that uh, one of the earliest settlements in the San Luis Valley. It was originally called Culebra Abajo, uh, the Lower Culebra, uh, was attacked by a band of Utes in 1853. All the men in town were out uh, tending the sheep, and all the women, children, and elderly saw an approaching, attacking band of Ute warriors. They dropped to their knees and prayed to San Acasio, or Saint Acasius, who was a popular saint in New Mexico at the time, and the warriors stopped in their tracks, turned around, and fled. Uh, allegedly because they saw a vision of a well-armed group of soldiers. In one version of the story, another, that Saint San Acasio himself appeared as a giant apparition above the town. Either way, something they saw encouraged them to uh, leave. Uh, in gratitude, the people built, uh, built a church on the site, and named their town after San Acasio. Next one. And El Cerro de las Brujas, or Brujos, uh, this could be called uh, my great-grandmother's Sinfor. Sinforiana Naranjo uh, was born in Los Sauces. Uh, her father, Juanito Naranjo, is buried there. Um, there is a hill just outside of town, depicted there on the left, that um, is said to be a place where the, the brujos or the brujas uh, congregate. It, kind of like uh, Deanza's sighting, um, is said to have fireballs dancing around it. Part of, their, um, part of the legend is that a brujo or a bruja can transform into a fireball to travel. So, like, Western witches ride on brooms, New Mexican witches travel as fireballs. Um, now, it's important to understand that a bruja, or a brujo, is um, a very distinct kind of witch, not a Wiccan. Be, be very clear on that. This is not a... Uh, this is something that is very, very... taken very seriously. In fact, um, to the same degree of a skinwalker, Right? They actually have similar powers to a skinwalker. The main thing is that they're still human, and um, it's they're blamed for curses. They can shapeshift, usually into the form of a dog or a coyote or some kind of um, more tricksterish type of do uh, type of type of figure like that. And uh, there's lots of stories of uh, folks chasing after a uh, a coyote or something like that, and shooting them, wounding it, the animal getting away, 
and then someone who has been suspected of being a brujo or a bruja is seen with uh, suddenly walking around limping with an injury in the same leg or the same, uh, the same place where they injured the animal. So essentially condemning them to, uh, that's the trial, so to speak. Recognizing that that's the, that's the, that's the witch, that's the brujo. <clears throat> Next, please. Now, on the other side of that is curanderismo, or eh, curindera, curindero. These are, these are healers. They're the, 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 the good, the light side of the force, right? Um, curanderismo is a, basically a, a, a traditional form of folk healing. It mixes uh, elements of Spanish and indigenous practices in order to heal. Uh, being so isolated, um, people would be, uh, you know, there's no doctor, there's no priest. People are here on their own, have to take care of themselves. So every matriarch uh, of a family generally had uh, some basic understanding of herbs and remedies and those sorts of things in order to take care of their family. Of course, my great-grandma Margarita Sena here was no exception. She taught me, uh, she taught me more than I realized uh, but uh, particularly about um, keeping myself safe from those brujos, brujas. Make, make sure uh, don't don't leave my hair clippings and my nail fingernail clippings where somebody could get a hold of them and, and do nasty things to me. Um, she also read tea leaves. She um, and she regularly conversed with uh, her ancestors who had crossed over to the other side, and we had at least one conversation where we made a deal. Uh, sometimes they came to her in a way that was pretty freaky. She wasn't always comfortable with it. So she, uh, we made a promise to each other that whichever one of us went first, that if we came back to say goodbye, we'd do so in a way that wouldn't, wouldn't be freaky. Uh, and of course, being having about 90 years, uh, 80, 80 years ahead of me, she died when she was at 96. I was about uh, 15. Um, so she went on before me. Uh, right after the rosary ceremony, uh, we came home and all of the music boxes in the house were playing for about a minute. And I recognized that was her sign. That was her way of coming back to say goodbye. She also has stories uh, of the valley growing up. She's from Capulín. This is her... Uh, next slide, please. That's all right. Yeah, so that's her in the bottom there with her family. Uh, and she, uh, so she's about five years old here. Um, conveniently right at the, about the age that she said this story occurred. She said that one day a man came to the door, came to the house, really scared, really frightened, very upset because he had just seen a grasshopper the size of a man a six-foot-tall grasshopper. It was in, so my great-great-grandfather, Bernardo, grabbed his gun and his son and went out with the man to go look for this creature. Um, we don't know what happened next. Grandma was too young. She was about five. She doesn't know for sure what happened, but we do know that at least this was something that the community knew about and was uh, certainly taking seriously. Um, a more modern story is a friend of mine uh, who lived in Crestone actually claimed to have seen or seen a silhouette 
of something that looked like a uh, insectoid type humanoid being in the trees near her home up there and uh, heard some sounds to go along with it. Now, there are Hopi legends, Hopi stories of ant people. Um, according to the stories, uh, at one time in their history, uh, the Hopi people had to uh, spend some time underground to get away from whatever was going on on the surface. It wasn't a, uh, a safe uh, environment, um, probably due to climate change. And they um, sought shelter under the ground. While they were there, they encountered some very friendly insectoid-type beings. They called the ant people. They helped them out, helped them get through it. Um, they depict these creatures in their, uh, some of their, their ceremonies, some of their dance um, traditions. Um, does this have a connection? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, but there's also uh, more modern stories of people who believe that they've been encountered, uh, that they've had encounters with insectoid-type um, aliens, creatures they believe to be extraterrestrial. Also benevolent, mind you. I've actually uh, rarely, if ever, heard stories where they were menacing specifically, um, although obviously the fear surrounding my family's encounter can't be understated. Nobody actually seemed to have gotten hurt. So who knows? Next, please. Really? We're already at Fort Garland? Hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yep, there we are. Sorry about that. Uh, Fort Garland. Fort Garland is, uh, now we have some of the, the more American influence, right? Fort Garland uh, was, after the, uh, after the acquisition of this area, uh, Fort Garland was built as a military outpost by the Americans to keep an eye on the valley, keep everybody safe, right? Um, and just like any good old fort, good old military fort, it is haunted as hell. The uh, barracks in particular, um, uh, there's been a lot of reports of activity there. I actually have made contacts with some people who've got some pretty cool pictures, um, still being worked on, still analyzing them. Um, but if you go, um, you can uh, go and check things out for yourself. It's, uh, I highly recommend it. There's a museum, uh, a lot to encounter, and um, there's actually a reenactment uh, a group that does reenacting uh, on Memorial Day, and uh, they're the ones who told me some of the best stories. Um, and as reenactors go, uh, they tend to be a pretty close-knit group, so they all know each other. And uh, occasionally, uh, they'll they'll see a reenactor that they don't really know all that well, or they don't they don't know at all, to be specific. And they're really, really, really good. Their costumes are on point, right? And, uh, but they never seem to be able to uh, talk to them directly and the kind of come and go uh, without uh, having any uh, encounter or any, any contact with folks. So uh, it is assumed that these reenactors are indeed the spirits coming back to just enjoy the, enjoy the time with the, uh, uh, with the event. Uh, next, please. The UFO Watchtower is also a pretty, uh, it's a must-see 
kind of uh, stop. Uh, it's not much to speak of uh, the, the structure itself, but it's a great viewing spot for the valley and the sand dunes uh, on the other side. Um, this is uh, my, my cousin, Alejandro Rojas, who uh, has uh, helped me with a lot of the investigations. Um, he's also now the, uh, he, he has a podcast and a radio show, does a conference. Uh, but this was actually the site of his very first UFO sighting. He saw, similar to what Danza saw, actually, a uh, group of lights dancing along the top of the mountain peaks, going back and forth. And uh, as much as he investigates UFOs, that's one of, if, if not the only, was certainly the first, but not, not many. He hasn't seen many UFOs, but that was one. Um, uh, Cat and I have gone up there a couple times, and the last time we were down here, we actually uh, went up and saw something interesting. I think it could have, it's possible it could have been a meteor, but it did some interesting things. Basically, we saw a streak of light, stopped, and then pick up again and continue on, uh, kind of as if you were drawing, like drawing with a marker on the wall and picked up and came back in again and went again. Um, Typically, a meteorite, if it was skipping off the atmosphere, it would do the opposite, actually, uh, because of the curvature of the Earth. So maybe maybe it was something anomalous, maybe not. Uh, again, at least a UFO, because we didn't know what it was, right? Um, next slide, please. Cattle mutilations, strange animal deaths. So I'll give you a content warning right now. Uh, first of all, uh, this picture is going to be the most graphic picture that I'm going to show. It's it's a it's a Lego cow, so uh, don't don't be uh, too upset about that. But I will discuss some more graphic details about the nature of the phenomenon. If that makes you uncomfortable, please feel free to step out. I won't be offended, um, but it does get pretty gruesome. Um, The phenomenon of cattle mutilations is probably one of the creepiest uh, things that I've ever personally encountered. Um, it's so strange, so bizarre, and so real. Um, one of the most famous cases, one of the earliest documented cases, was in the valley. Uh, a horse, actually, by the name of Lady, uh, was found skeletonized from the chest up, her bones were completely removed of flesh, and the bones were bleached in the sun as if they'd been out in the sun for months. And this occurred over a few hours the night before. It was investigated. She was erroneously dubbed Snippy by the media, and it was very thoroughly investigated by not only the FBI, but also Colorado State University, and some notable UFO researchers, one of them being uh, Linda Moulton Howe. Uh, she actually used that experience and then wrote the uh, portion of the Mutual UFO Network's field investigator manual on what to do when you encounter cattle mutilations, which came in very handy when my cousin and I uh, in, uh, had the opportunity to investigate a cattle mutilation here in, uh, in Trinidad, uh, with a rancher named Mike Duran. Uh, it was in 2009. We came down, took measurements. 
the, uh, we took tissue samples, we took soil samples, we took measurements, uh, and we had them tested by the uh, Colorado State University. Um, had some of the organs were removed. There was no evidence of predation, meaning no, no animals, no scavengers were wanting to touch it. Um, things just like uh, with the other cases, things happened very quickly with surgical precision. And um, one of the interesting things that I've found over the, the course of this research is that they tend to only affect <clears throat> herds that are raised organically, right? And so or, uh, you don't see crop circles in more Monsanto fields. You don't see cattle mutilations in factory farm kind of uh, herds, which is kind of a really interesting point. Um, the results of the uh, tests were that um, basically all we were able to get out of it was that the wounds occurred post-mortem, which means that this happened after the animal had died. Um, so for better or worse, at least it appears that she didn't suffer. Um, that said, it's still really weird. It's still really creepy. Um, the ranchers are not happy with losing um, uh, a head of cattle in any event. Um, uh, our, our friend Chuck Zukowski had also continued uh, investigating, and uh, this is a continuing, ongoing thing. Um, in fact, uh, coming up into uh, just uh, within the last few years, even the uh, Cattlemen's Association held an emergency meeting to address um, the disappearances of a lot of cattle, um, most of which are assumed to be the work of rustlers, but there's that small percentage of the anomalies that get um, put into this category of um, legitimately strange and unusual. There's a lot of theories as to who might be doing it and why. We can get into that a little later because I think we're, we're, I don't want to go over time, but um, there's lots of uh, resources to dig, dig into a little deeper if you're interested. Next slide, please. The Witch's Grave. Uh, so this is a, a, this story was brought to us by a mutual contact who actually used to work at La Puente and who is asked to remain anonymous. Um, so if you know who they are, please uh, keep it to yourself for now. Um, uh, but he brought a very fascinating photo to our attention. Um, in the Alamosa Municipal Cemetery, there is a plot with a very beautiful, big, angelic statue in the central monument. This is a version of that here. If you go to visit, uh, which is just down the road, so if you go to visit, please be respectful. Um, it has a reputation as the witch's grave because there is an inscription that shows the interred died on October 36, 1913, a date that's believed by many of the locals to be derived from some sort of witch's calendar. People regard the grave with a cautious respect and a bit of superstitious fear. It is customary that if you visit the grave to bring an offering to leave behind uh, to avoid being cursed or to avoid bringing something back with you. Our La Puente friend thought it would be a good idea, a bit of spooky fun, to bring a visiting friend out to the grave and uh, kind of show it off. Uh, between, uh, on September 16th, 
2019, between 7 p.m. and 7.30, just after sunset, he took a series of photos that freaked him out. So, unfortunately, it's, it's rather difficult to see from this view. Uh, but basically, one picture shows, as you can see, uh, the, the statue appears to be holding a, a wreath, right? In one picture, she's got her hand clenched all five fingers around the wreath. In the other picture, the taller, longer, skinnier one, her index finger is actually extended. Uh, go ahead to the next one. Might be able to see a little better. Uh, so as you can see, we uh, analyzed this and ran it through some filters. One of my uh, investigators is also a graphic designer, so we apply the idea of you know what would what would she do to create the image, right? In order to analyze, back engineer it, if you will, um, run it through some filters, do some things, play with the lighting, basically determine whether or not it's been manipulated or doctored. Uh, the conclusion is that this is. Uh, none of these pictures have been manipulated or, or changed in any way. They are how they, how, how, they, how they were taken. So that implies that either something was affecting the camera or something's affecting the statue. Um, we've uh, taken a lot of... Um, I, I took this opportunity to really dig into who... Who is buried here in the witch's grave? Uh, why is it that this statue has this association? Um, breaking some of the, kind of taking, stripping it down a little bit, taking away from uh, you know this this October thirty sixth. Um, uh, as far as I know, uh, modern witches, Wicca folks, pagans, um, nobody I know of uses a um, a thirty six month calendar. Um, based, uh, according to the actual the cemetery office uh, themselves, they say it's just a typo. Um, but uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of stories uh, tied up with that. Um, there's a lot of interesting synchronicities with the numbers. Uh, um, also, um, so it's a family plot, as I mentioned. There are um, multiple members of the family uh, buried here. Um, the uh, the person who is said to have died on October 36 was uh, Wilhelmina Becker Imperius, who was um, a woman who actually owned land in her own name, um, and her husband was the butcher. Um, and he preceded her in death by just about a year, and he died on October 31st, Halloween night, another kind of um, auspicious uh, date. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of things going into why this is referred to as a witch's grave, and obviously um, with weird things happen to the uh, to the statue. Um, still, uh, still a bit of a mystery as to why this happened. Uh, I personally believe uh, that maybe um, these spirits come to us in a way, whether you believe. Uh, whether you believe in actual ghosts, whether you believe in uh, the supernatural or an afterlife, what happens is that by doing this kind of research, by doing this, uh, by connecting with these um, these uh, stories, 
you learn a great deal about the community. You learn a great deal about the history. You learn a great deal about these people, the actual living people who once lived here. So perhaps these, uh, the people who, uh, the family who was buried in this plot are reaching out to uh, get, their, get their story out, their real true story, you know, who they really were, and not just be uh, reduced as uh, these uh, kind of demonized and um, ridiculed as, as this, uh, this kind of negative uh, element that it is. So, again, much respect. And with that in mind, uh, that pretty much concludes the talk. Um, with always, with, as always, much respect to all of the people who have lived and died and may be coming back to visit us. Um, and thank you for your time and attention. Um, if you're interested to learn more about me or the Crypto Science Society or any more of these stories, we're on Instagram, Twitter, all of the socials, uh, YouTube, podcast, all that good stuff. Um, and I'm happy to uh, hang out and answer questions for you as well. So thank you very much.